All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're starting a new series. This is just the introduction to it. So there'll be this introduction and then five more on these five ones. And the reason that we want to do this series is, uh, as Christians, we, we have this issue about who we are, our identity, and what we be, and also what we do. And it's actually philosophers and, and writers for centuries have actually been struggling with this issue. Is our primary identity of who we are, the root of our existence, existentially in our being, or is it in our doing? Uh, which is it? And uh, the playwright William Shakespeare, his introspective character Hamlet, asks the question, to be or not to be, this is the question. And then in 1905, philosopher Carl Gustav Jung states existentially, you are what you do. And then more recently, the great poets of the 1970s, the Bee Gees, weighed in with, do be, do be, do. <laughs> Which is it? Do we be or do we do? What is our identity in? And it's an important question. Seriously, it is. Uh, we face every day. You know, whether we realize it or not, because everyone, all humans, we all wake up in the morning with a set of beliefs about the kind of person we feel we are, about who we are, what we believe we are. And then, based on those beliefs, every human being does this, gets up in the morning, goes out, based on those beliefs of what they think their being is, and they then go about their day engaged in activities and doing things and making choices to do things in their lives based on what they believe and reflecting those beliefs. And so the question may not be what is more important, but rather... What tells the truer story of our identity? Are we truly identified by who we say we are and what we say we believe? Or are we more accurately identified and have a more accurate reflection of who we are based on what we do? So it may not be what's more important. It may be just what actually tells the truer story. Is it what we say we are? Is it what we say we believe? Or is it what we actually do? And we face this same question as Christians with respect to our faith and our identity. How do we know, how do we measure our identity in Christ? Is it primarily who we are and what we believe, or is it what we do? And just before the summer series, we concluded a series on Galatians. And I just wanted to remind you really briefly of, of what we learned there, because it's really important to our faith as believers. And if you don't remember it, you can go back and listen to Galatians again, that series. And it's important to this series that we're about to start now. At the, at the heart of the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, literally the center of the letter, the Apostle Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, do you really think you became who you are because of what you did or what you do? Or are you believers? Are you born again? Do you have your identity in Christ by faith what you believe? And then Paul spends an entire chapter, threes and four, explaining what God did that the law and our doing couldn't do. And so the Galatians, the book of Galatians is really about you don't do anything, God has already done it. And praise God for that. God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, all that is necessary for our salvation so that we can have a new identity in Christ. And that's what Galatians is about. And we spent many weeks on that talking about just the beauty and the glory of the gospel. So that in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul just kind of hammers home our identity or who we be in Christ, if I can say it that way. 
He says in Galatians 4, 6-7, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's who you be, Christian. You are that. That's your being. Praise God, right? And that's who we are, not because of anything we do, but because God has done it. And you could look at Ephesians, or you could look at Romans, or you could look at Colossians, or 1 Peter, or John, or the Gospels, and you would find that exact same truth told to you over and over and over again, because that's the Gospel. And that's what the Bible's about. But then a lot of us like to live right there, because that truth is just so glorious, and we rest in that. We just stay right there in the heart of that Gospel truth, and it's the greatest truth on the planet, so there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul doesn't stop teaching there in Galatians. And neither does James, neither does John, or neither does Peter, or Jesus for that matter. Paul goes on to teach in chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians that because this is who you be, then this is now how you will live. This is what you will do. And so we absolutely have our being, not in anything that we do, but because we be something, Paul says, and Peter says, and John says, and Jesus says, you will then therefore do something. And they don't end their teaching at being because there's a dangerous mistake that can emerge from only going so far into the gospel and then stopping. Going only so far as to live by faith that God, God's love will meet you and God's love will forgive you and God's love will engage with you wherever you are at in your life right now. That's true. That's absolutely true. But if you only go that far and you don't go on to the reality that his love will leave you untransformed where he found you, then you haven't finished the gospel. You've just got half a gospel. The gospel is God will meet you wherever you are, transform your life, give you a new being, but then you will go on to a new life and to doing. And so the teaching never ends just at chapter 4. It goes on to 5 and 6. But sadly... And dangerously, I think spiritually dangerously, we see that in the lives of some professing Christians that we know, don't we? I mean, they say, oh, I believe in God, and I've even asked forgiveness. I remember, I was at camp, and I asked forgiveness for my sins, and I invited Jesus into my heart, and I understand that God loves me no matter what, and it's not anything that I do, it's what God has done, and so I don't go to church, and I don't serve in a ministry, and I don't actually talk to Him all that often, because it's not about what I do, it's all about what He's done. And and so I believe in God, But, you know, don't turn me into some kind of legalist. You know, don't say I've got to go to church every Sunday. Don't say I've got to, you know, read my Bible. Don't say I've got to, you know, serve in ministry or or give to the kingdom or work, you know, work for God's people. Like, don't that's that's like legalism. I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm evangelical. I just believe that it's all what God did and that's it. And so I play golf on Sundays. And, uh, you know, I spend my money on myself. And I do all those things because I don't want to be a Pharisee. I've read in the Bible that the Pharisees are bad, so I'm staying far away from anything that looks like legalism. And I'm not doing anything at all because I just want God to get all, all the credit, right? And then I say, what chapter and verse are you in right now? I'm trying to figure out where you got that in the Scripture. But we meet people like that, right? That they, they love the Gospel because it means they don't have to do anything. And it's like, but they only got half the Gospel. And so in this little series, when we're answering the question, or we're asking the question, who we be, then what do we do? And we're, we're looking in this little series that we're going to do is, is not a list, a list of bad things to avoid and good things to do. So I'm not, I'm not saying now that you're a Christian, you know, you have to help old ladies across the street and, 
you know, make sure you do this and don't do this. You know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do and all that stuff. Right? Like, so that's not the doing that I'm talking about. That's in Scripture too. And we looked at some of those before, but we're not looking at those things. I'm saying because we be, because we have this identity in Christ, because we become a new creation, what then is our pattern of living? What do Christians do? And really answering the question, why do Christians always do these things? When you look down through history, Christians always seem to act like Christians, right? They show up on Sunday morning at a gathering, you know, they give some money, they help the poor, they do these things, they pray, all this stuff. Like, why do Christians act like Christians? Why do we do what we do? And so that's the question. We be something, but we also do something. And we don't want to get so caught up in the being, which is glorious, that God has done for us what needs to be done for us to be Christian and to be saved, and to be forgiven, and to be have a relationship with him, and to be heirs with Christ, and all of that stuff. But then, what do we do? Why do Christians do what we do? And that's what we're going to look at. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts out again, similar to Galatians, he starts out with a statement of identity. In Ephesians chapter 2, and then we're going to be in chapter 4, if you wanted to open to chapter Ephesians chapter 4, uh, or tap there on your phone. We're going to be there most of the time, but we're jumping around. But Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts out again with this statement of identity. He says in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Right? That's, that's who you are. That's an identity statement. Nothing about doing anything. But then he shifts from that identity piece that he's doing in chapter 2, just like he does in Galatians, and later on in chapter 4, he starts to talk about what this new pattern of living is for Christians in community together, because they are those things. So he says in one, he says, therefore, because of that identity, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Oh, lead a life worthy of your calling. This starts to sound like doing now. So you are something, and as because you are something, you're going to start doing something. And he goes on in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. He says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this doing will continue until we all come to such a unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So you see what Paul's done there? He said, you are something, and now because you are this thing, because this is who you be, you are going to start to do something. You're going to do His work. And I've equipped you as Christians, with the things that you need to do the work of the church, to build up the church. And that work, that doing, is going to continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God that we will be mature in the Lord and measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. So as I look around, we're not done the work. Okay? Right? Is anybody here mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ? If we can all put our hand up, then we're done. Okay, no. So there's more work to do. And we have these gifts and these people that do this for us in the church. Now you're reading this and you might say, but it says measure up. Measuring up? That sounds like effort. That sounds like work. Paul, you just said, you know, Galatians was amazing. And you just said that that the gospel is about not working. But now Paul is saying that we have to measure up. This sounds like a standard we have to meet. 
It sounds like effort. It sounds like work. And yes, it is work. It's the same thing that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. He came and he died for us. He lived the perfect life. He died the sacrificial death. He rose again to prove the promise of God that his death was sufficient for us. But Jesus is going to come and he's describing in Matthew 25 to his disciples and those that are listening. He says, there are two different types of people now. I've come and I've transformed. So there is a new being now for some. Some are sheep and some are goats. And when I come, I'm going to separate the different beings in the world, those that be Christian and those that be not Christian, the sheep from the goats. And as he's describing this in Matthew 25, I'm not going to get into it all now for for time. You'll remember the passage because it's a scary passage. It's one of those ones you don't forget. Because what does he say? How does Jesus separate the sheep from the goats? He starts talking about what those people were doing. He doesn't talk their being. He says, look, some of you fed me when I was hungry. And you gave me a glass to drink, glass of water to drink when I was thirsty. And you visited me in prison. And you took care of me when I was sick. And you clothed me when I was naked. And they say, what? When, when did we see you in any of these situations? And Jesus says, whenever you did it, For the least of these, you did it for me. And so Jesus now says, there is doing involved with your being. I know who the sheep are because the sheep make themselves known by what they do. And I know who the goats are because the goats don't do it. And he says, go away from me. I never knew you. So that's Jesus' teaching. But then Paul says the same thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, He says, because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder, and now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation, this sounds like a lot of work, building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. And so you're going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But he goes on and he says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. And the fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So what is this saying? is saying that, yeah, you can rest in your salvation in the gospel, but because you be something, there is an expectation you will do something. You, the straw will be burnt up if your works are made of straw, and you will escape through the fire. And the reason for this in Scripture, and the reason Jesus give this, gives this warning, and Paul gives this warning, and John gives this warning, and Peter gives this warning, all, all in their own different ways, is because pretend because being without doing is pretending. If if you're trying to be something without actually doing the things, then you're really just pretending, and that's the danger of only understanding half a gospel. And we all know this guy, right? The city cowboy, the urban cowboy. We've seen this guy before, right? Or maybe this other guy with his hat and his belt buckle that's bigger than his head and his fancy boots and his lifted. Uh, is four by four pavement princess car, you know, it's never seen a dirt road. You show this guy a horse, he wouldn't know which direction to get on. He says he's a cowboy. He identifies as a cowboy, but he's never seen a cow in his life. So is he really a cowboy? I mean, he can identify as a cowboy. He can pretend to be a cowboy. He can do lots of cowboy things, he thinks, but it's all really just dress up, right? Would any real cowboy actually take this guy seriously? 
being without doing is just pretending. And we've got to be careful as Christians that we're not just pretending. That we don't say we're Christians, but then there's nothing going on in our life that says we're actually doing the things that Christians do. And so what do Christians do and why do we do them? That's what we're going to be looking at. If we've really become something new, then change in our behavior is inevitable. In Colossians chapter 3, we have this wonderful long passage that describes the reality of being alive in Christ Jesus. And right in the middle of that passage in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say that once that transformation has, or once that being has happened, once you become something in Jesus Christ, then the transformation is inevitable. It's irresistible. Colossians 3, 9 to 10, he says, You have been stripped of your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. So Paul's invoking this language of identity. Your old sinful nature is gone and you've put on a new nature. It's not just a cowboy hat and boots and you know jeans and a big belt buckle. This is not just dress up. You're not just it's not just some new idea. You know, you haven't just given up carbs or decided to become a jogger or stop smoking. Paul says this is a new nature. You are a new creation. And if you are that new creation, then change is inevitable because as we put on this new self we're born again and become this new creation we're just babies we're just little babies in this new life in first corinthians 3 paul talks about this he says dear brothers and sisters when i was with you i couldn't talk to you as i would to spiritual people i had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in christ i had to feed you with milk not with solid foods because you weren't ready for anything stronger when Isaac was little, we used to tell him that he had to stop growing. You know, he'd be getting taller and taller and growing up, and he'd go to the next grade, and, you know, it would be like, stop growing up. You know, you just, you're getting too big. You've got to stop it. And he's like, I can't stop it. And that's what it's like in Christ. We're born into this new family, and we are a new creation, and we are little infants in Christ to begin with, but then change is inevitable. The doing is inevitable. You begin to act like a Christian, and you begin to do the things that Christians do because you are made in the image of Christ, and you're becoming more and more Christ-like, and you shouldn't be able to stop growing up. You remember when you were a kid, you had the doorpost and the measuring marks, right? Especially if you had brothers and sisters. You had that doorpost where all the little all the little ticks were with the pencil and you'd stand up there and try and stand on your tiptoes to get a little taller, try to beat out your brother or your sister, right? And, and you would look at those marks and you would see the progress as you grew. You know, in five or six or seven years, you'd walk by that doorpost and you'd look down and you're like, really, was I that small? I can't believe that was me seven years ago. So God has given us a family and given us parents and given us patterns of living to help us grow up. Going back to our verse in Ephesians. See how it ends in 4.13 there. This is, what he, this is what Paul is saying. He says, This will continue until we have all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you're going to mature. You're going to grow up. You used to be infants in the faith, but you are growing. And we're going to continue to do these things as Christians, as believers, these patterns of healthy living so that you will become mature and you will measure up so that the door frame, you're going to be like six foot two, right? 220 pounds. You're going to be strong. You're going to be tall. You're going to be powerful in the kingdom of God. So he says, you've been 
You've believed in Christ. You're set free from your old nature and patterns of living. And you now have these new nature and these new patterns. And through Jesus, God has actually given us gifts, he says in Ephesians. Given us other believers in the church to help us mature into this new identity. So we're just babies to start with. And then this new person that we become, it needs to mature. And God's given us a healthy place and healthy patterns for us to follow in order to mature. And it continues until we're fully mature and we fully measure up. So now as Christians, it would be good to know how we're doing in this maturing. And this is where the series kicks in, right? Because as you're growing up, it's good to know how you're doing. That's why you've got the measuring, you know, the doorposts to measure against. That's why they give you tests in school. That's why you graduate from grade one to grade two to grade three and from middle school to high school and from high school to university. Because it's good to know as you're growing and as you're learning and as you're maturing, it's good to know how you're doing in this. It would be good for us to know as Christians, as believers, how are we doing in our growing? How are we doing in our doing for God? It's good for us. It's a benefit for us. It's not a benefit for God. And, and, and keep this in mind all the time. Okay, whenever you learn something about yourself and your faith and where you are as a Christian and how you think you're doing and your heart's doing, that benefit of you knowing that and being revealed to you is a benefit for you. It's not a benefit for God. God already knows I hate to spoil it for you. He already knows exactly how you're doing in your faith. So when something happens and you suddenly realize something about your faith, there's no sense trying to hide it from God. He already knows. And it's not for his benefit. It's for your benefit. It's so that you know how you're doing. God will show things to you in your walk for your benefit so you know exactly how you're doing and where you might want to do a little more. The benefit is for us to know how we're growing and where we need to grow. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at five core areas of the Christian faith and Christian health in terms of what we do and why we do it. And you won't find a scripture verse that says these five things all together. These are taken systematically from the patterns of healthy Christian living that we find in scripture in the New Testament. Worship together, prayer, training, ministry, and evangelism. And it's just a really simple checklist on the health or the maturity or the completeness of the Christian. Okay, so I've called this the five ones, and we've tried to make it easy, so it's just on one hand that you have five things to remember, that there is one gathering for worship, there's one time for prayer, there's one group for discipleship, there's one ministry for service, and there's one friend for Christ. And as you're going through your Christian walk, if you can go through those five things and identify, yeah, I I go to church on Sunday and I worship God and I I have a time in my life for prayer and I have a a group that I get together with that's discipling me and helping me grow and I have a ministry where I serve in the kingdom and I have a friend that I'm evangelizing, I have have a friend or two that I am praying for and I am trying to bring closer to the kingdom and introduce gospel opportunities into their life. If you go through and you say that, then as your pastor, if you come to me for confession, I'm like, you're doing great. Right? Like, that's pretty good. That, that's pretty good discipleship right there. You're, you're walking well in your faith. But on the other hand, if you look at that little health checkup and you say, well, you know, I don't really have a prayer time and I'm not really serving and I don't really have anybody that I'm hoping to introduce to the gospel, then you have to ask yourself, if one or two of those things are missing, why are those missing? Because as we look at the pattern of healthy Christian life in Scripture, you will find that these are the things, and there's more than this, but these are just five simple things that we can look at and say, this is the doing that comes from being. And we're not going to pretend that we are Christians, that we be something, if we don't also see the growing and the maturing in the doing 
of what Christians do. And as you look through history, this is what Christians do. And you might ask yourself, like, why do we do this on Sunday morning? And a lot of people, mostly people who don't want to be here on Sunday morning, ask that question. Well, how come you all get together on Sunday morning and sit and listen to the scripture and sing some songs and, and do all of that stuff? You know, that's just old-fashioned church. You know, why do you do it that way? I don't, I don't want to worship that way. Well, we do it this way because the church has been doing it for 2,000 years this way, and the church has been doing it for 2,000 years this way because this is how God told us to do it. He said, gather, hear my word, encourage one another, sing psalms and hymns, serve, pray. So the reason Christians do what we do is because of who we be. And if you don't understand why we do them, and you can take them for granted and assume you don't need them, right? And going back to our analogy of being babies growing up in the church, this is kind of like the teenagers in the faith, right? You know, you become that, you're a baby and it was like so exciting to be part of the family and you were coming to church and then you got a little bit older in your faith, you became like the teenage Christian, right? And you just figured out you already know all you need to know and you don't need to waste your time with, you know, boring stuff like church, you know? And, you know, all these old fuddy-duddies, they don't know what they're talking about anymore and my music's cooler and... You know, what I do, the way I worship is, is the right way. Total teenager, right? And, you know, but then you get a year or two down the road or you get a little bit older in your faith and then the crisis hits. Or you've burnt one too many relationship bridges. Or now you're married and your kids won't listen to you. And, you know, or you're caught in some overwhelming pattern of sin and then all of a sudden you realize maybe you weren't as smart as you thought you were when you gave up on all this stuff. That maybe all this stuff was maybe valuable after all. And you need to come back to going to church and praying and reading the word and being in a group that can encourage you and serving and having relationships with other people that are gospel relationships. Because down the road, after you grow up a little bit in the faith, you realize, wow, this maybe what they were saying was a good idea. Or if we don't understand why we do these things, we can start to think they don't really matter. You can say, oh, I love Jesus and I want to serve him and I do serve him, but that church stuff is all just religion. It's tradition and ritual and it doesn't work for me. But there is a reason that churches look like church for 2,000 years now. In Paul's day, all the Christians in a village gathered together on the first day of the week and they all sang songs and they all read scripture and they were all taught its meaning and they all took up a collection to support ministry and missions. And when they met together through the week, they shared food and shelter and comfort with each other and they served one another and they spread the gospel. That's what church looked like 2,000 years ago and that's what church has looked like for 2,000 years because this is how God planned it. And frankly, it takes a pretty special kind of self-importance to imagine that you're smarter than God and 2,000 years worth of Christians. If you don't think this is important, God planned the church to be the church. And there's a reason it is what it is. And that's what we're going to look at over the next five weeks. Why do we worship? Why do we have this time for prayer with God? Why do we do discipleship? Why do we serve? Why do we reach people the way we do? So God's given us disciplines that express our behavior, who we are and what we believe. And from what we believe, we become new people and our new being results in new doing. We absolutely cannot become a Christian just by doing Christian things, right? Let's be clear on that. You don't become a Christian by doing Christian things any more than that cowboy becomes a cowboy by putting on cowboy clothes. But we do Christian things because we have become Christ's. And so I think the BGs kind of had the right idea. They were onto something, but maybe they just had it backwards. It's not dooby dooby do, it's be do, be do be. <laughs> think about that at lunch. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, 
we do glory in our identity as Christians. Those of us here today who are believers, wow. Thank you that you did everything that had to be done for us to be called children of God. Lord, we can't take one milligram of glory away from that. You've done on the cross what had to be done. And Father, for those of us that believe that, we know the transformation that's taken place. The Holy Spirit has come. We're new people. We're not what we were before. And so because we have become those children of yours, we want to do what your children do. And Father, maybe there's some people here who have just been playing dress up. Maybe they just thought, you know, I go to church, and I even read my Bible, I even pray. And so I think, you know, I do these Christian things, and that, that makes me a Christian. But they've never laid down their life. They've never repented. They've never recognized that you're sovereign, you're in control. They have to let go and allow you to be in charge of their life. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who's just been pretending, and whatever pretending means to them, then I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would speak to them and that they would, this would be the day of their salvation. They realize they don't have to pretend because it's a lot of work to pretend to keep trying to be something that you're not. And they could just rest in you and become your child so that they can be a Christian and then the doing gets so much easier. So, Father, if there's anyone here like that, I pray they would, they would just ask you for that gift, that miracle of salvation as they lay down their own life to pick up yours. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would understand why we do what we do. That as believers, we would know that this isn't just tradition and ritual and things that's nice for the kids to have a place to grow up in and have friends. That what we do here in church is by your plan and it's so important for our growing and maturity and health as Christians. If we leave these things behind, then we are in danger. And so, Father, I pray that in the weeks to come we'll know what it means to be healthy children of yours, doing because of what you have made us be. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.